Today we tackle the questions, what is infertility? When should I be concerned? And when should I see my fertility doctor? I'm Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Taco About Fertility Tuesday. Infertility. What does this mean? The easy definition is that when a couple tries to have children and can't. Now, for every person, there is going to be different forms of infertility. For example, primary infertility would be trying to have your first child. Secondary infertility would be trying to have other children after having a child. Infertility affects 15% of the population. But what does infertility really mean? Infertility is a fear. When you are infertile, it is a very scary feeling. Being through it myself, I remember the days of thinking I may never be a parent. So yes, there is a definition But the most important thing to remember is, is that someone believes they may never have kids. And it's not just not getting pregnant. It's not just wait a little bit or you're too stressed. It's not that it's not just one of those. It will happen. It is a very real fear. You begin to question things like why God would do this to you. Are you being punished? And for women, it's much worse. As men, we never play with dolls. We never dream of what it's going to be like being a mother. And for women, they've been waiting their whole day for this. And when they can't do it, they feel like they did not bring the one thing they were supposed to bring to the relationship. Now, of course, everyone's different. Not everyone feels this way. I think one of the most important things to remember about infertility is, yes, is there a diagnosis? Is there a clear-cut definition? There is. It's when you can't get pregnant. Most define this as after a year without having success. But I think it's very, very important to remember that when you have infertility, it's not just not being able to have a kid. The greatest fear is, what if I never have kids? So before we talk about when you need to see the doctor, I think the question is, when should you be worried? When should you start thinking, maybe I should see someone about this? I think the first thing to understand is, is that if you're not getting pregnant after even just three months, something might be wrong. Most people, after just three months of trying, 50% of people will be pregnant. By six months of trying, 70% of people would be pregnant, and by one year, 85% of people would be pregnant. By three years, 97% of people would be pregnant. So the point is, if you're not getting pregnant within the first three to six months, something is wrong. Now, we really make a cutoff for infertility at trying for one year if you're under 35. But if you're over 35, the definition is after six months of trying. Now, why is there a difference between these two? There really isn't a difference. 
It's just that when you're under 35, you have more time and you don't have to rush into the doctor as much. That's the only reason for this difference between one year and six months. But there is another important part, and that is when we tell people to try for six months to a year, it's important to make sure that this is someone who has no other issues. So if you have irregular periods, that would be something to be concerned about. If you got every 28 day cycles, you're fine. If you have a history of infertility or a family history of infertility, specifically things that are passed along, such as endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, those would be reasons to seek help. For men, any history of undescended testicles or trauma to the testicular region or pain in the past in the testicular region would be reasons to seek guidance. Other things that should concern you are anyone with a history of surgeries, especially in the pelvis, anyone with a history of chlamydia, or anyone with a history of any tubal disease, such as an ectopic pregnancy or hydrosalpings. Now, the reason why these are concerning is when you talk about irregular periods, you're talking about not ovulating all the time. If a woman is ovulating every month, she will have a period that is clockwork, just like a heartbeat. If you don't have a period every month, then that means you're not ovulating on time. And that doesn't mean you can't get pregnant. But what it does mean is that it could be harder to get pregnant. Now, obviously, if you have a history of infertility, that should make you realize that you're probably going to have problems again. I see many patients who always ask me, well, I know it took a little bit to get pregnant the first time and needed treatment. Do you think I'll need it for the second one? The answer is yes. I know everyone's heard that person who said, oh, they had to do IVF and they've got kids after that with no problems. And those stories are true. However, they are far and few. Most of the time, if you need fertility treatment to get pregnant, you're going to need fertility treatment again to get pregnant. When it comes to surgical history, the biggest concern there is worrying about scar tissue occurring in the pelvis. So if you're a female and you've had ovarian surgery for endometriosis, if you've had any type of appendix rupture or any surgery that's in the abdomen or pelvis, you would not want to wait more than six months and then see a fertility doctor. Just like with, with the history of chlamydia, that can cause tubal disease. Each episode chlamydia increases your chances by 15% of having a blocked tube. By having a history of an ectopic pregnancy, it tells us that there is some type of tubal disease there, which is probably the reason for the ectopic. Now, when it comes to the male factor, there are several things I would look for in men. One, if there are any issues with signs of hypotestosteronism, I would recommend seeking fertility treatment sooner than later, such as very, very low sex drive, problems getting an erection, problems with ejaculation. Those are definitely signs of low testosterone. Another issue would be if a guy had a history of an undescended testicle. Even if it was repaired, there is the possibility that the testicle was kept in the abdomen for so long, it could hurt it and lower the sperm count. The other things men need to worry about 
is if there's been a history of severe pain in the testicular region. That could be the sign of an infection, and that can then block the ducts that allow the sperm to pass through. I personally feel that if you haven't got pregnant in six months, no matter what your age is, I think it is very reasonable to at least seek help. Sure, your insurance may require you to wait one year before doing any treatment, but it wouldn't be wrong to at least be evaluated to find out if there's a bigger problem. So at least that way, you can get a head start. So next, let's talk about what you need to do to see the fertility doctor. Obviously, the first thing is find the fertility doctor and find one that works for you. When you make the appointment, the first appointment is generally going to be an initial consult. Very rarely are there any tests done on this day, maybe an ultrasound, maybe blood work if you fall on the right day, but most of the time, this is going to be a conversation. And what we're doing in that conversation is we're trying to find out those risk factors that could put you at risk for infertility. So for example, in the history, if we found that maybe you had a ectopic in the past, we now know to look for tubal disease. The same thing, if we found out that your periods are irregular, then we need to look towards ovulation disorders. Now, after that first consult, what will usually happen is the doctor will make a plan and that usually requires testing. Now, not everyone needs all the tests, but there is testing that needs to be done. Usually this testing is going to hit a few areas. The first being the ovaries. The second will be the fallopian tubes. The third being the uterus. The fourth being male factor problems. And usually the fifth one is looking at prenatal issues, such as thyroid problems. I'd like to go over a few of these tests so you'll be prepared for them and won't be worried. We'll understand them a little bit more. One of the first tests is looking at the ovarian reserve. Ovarian reserve is just a fancy way, so you can't steal my job, of saying egg quality testing. The way we look at the ovarian reserve is we check a blood draw on the third day of your period where we look at a hormone called follicle stimulating hormone, FSH. And we also look at estrogen. Now, this is really important to see the estrogen with the FSH because if you draw an FSH without an estrogen, you may not get real results because FSH and estrogen are like yin-yangs. As one goes up, the other goes down. As one goes down, the other one goes up. So I can make any woman have a low FSH level if I give her enough estrogen. And so it's important to have both numbers so that way you can know if the test is valid. If you get a woman with an FSH level that's less than 10, which would be good, but the estrogen level is high, let's say 100, then we know that FSH value really isn't good. It's just being pushed down by the, low, by the high estrogen level. When we look at FSH, what we're looking for is we're looking for a lower number. Now, lower means under 10. When you're above 10, we consider this slightly diminished ovarian reserve. When you're above 12, we start considering this moderate to severe. And above 14, we consider this severe diminished ovarian reserve. Now, the question is, why does this matter? Why are we so obsessed with this FSH number? Think of FSH kind of like gasoline that goes down to the engine. A car that is new is going to take very little gas. 
You want to be a 2020 Prius, taking very little gas and going far. That tells me that you have a good engine. And if you think about it, if your brain on the third day of your period, when it's trying to build its eggs up for that month, takes only a little bit of gas, then if I come and give you more gas, I'm going to rev that engine, meaning I'm going to make more eggs. But if we find that your engine requires a lot of gasoline, let's say 18, now that's just to make one egg. So if I come over and give some more gas, I'm not going to be able to get above that 18. And now I'm not going to be able to make more eggs. So the biggest concern about having an elevated FSH level is not the number that we care about. We care about what it represents. It represents that your body needs a lot of hormones to make one egg. So again, it's not about the number. I can make your number low any day. It's about what it represents. And it represents that your body needs more hormones to do the same thing everyone else does is with less. And eventually there's only so much hormone we can give you and only make so many eggs. Now there are a couple other tests we can do to look at ovarian reserve as well. One of them is called the antral follicle count. And that is where the doctor does an ultrasound, usually a pelvic ultrasound, and counts up these little black circles on your ovaries. Those black circles are fluid-filled sacs called follicles. When we count those up, it gives us an idea of how many eggs you make each month. Now, you release one egg per month, but there are multiple eggs to choose from to release that egg. So when they do this ultrasound and they count those follicles up, that gives them a general idea of the maximum amount of eggs you can make that month. So if I see 12 follicles on someone's ovary and they have an FSH under 10, I know if I give enough medicine, I should be able to get at least 12 of those eggs. Another hormone that is very popular is AMH. AMH stands for anti-malarian hormone. The thought behind anti-malarian hormone is that it is released by the cells around the eggs. So if you have a high AMH level, then you must have a lot of cells. And since those cells sit around eggs, you must have a lot of eggs. So there is a direct correlation between the number of follicles you have and how high the AMH is. Now, sometimes you'll find AMHs that are low and a good follicle count. And the reason for this is because the AMH isn't coming from the follicles we see on the antral follicle count. They're coming from the very small ones that are going to be coming up months ahead or even a year from now. Now, there is some correlation between AMH level and the quality of your eggs and the quantity of eggs we should be able to retrieve. However, when we're looking at AMH, FSH, and natural follicle count, it's always important to remember the point of ovarian reserve testing. It is not there to determine if or if you cannot get pregnant. Rarely is that going to be the determining factor. What it really decides is how many eggs can you get and is it worth proceeding with treatment? So if I have someone with severe diminished ovarian reserve, but they're 21, I may still proceed ahead with IVF because I know I don't need a lot of eggs to get you pregnant because the eggs in a younger person are more likely to be genetically normal. However, if I have a severe diminished ovarian reserve patient 
who is 44, there is almost no chance of success, not because I'm not willing to try, not because she can't make an egg, but because she can only make one egg at a time. And that would be very, very difficult to be able to get pregnant. And the reason it would be difficult is because it would take 15 to 20 IVF cycles to get pregnant because it would take 15 to 20 IVF cycles to get the 10 to 15 embryos you would need for someone in their mid-40s to get a normal embryo. Overall, I think the most important thing when it comes to ovarian reserve testing is do not think of yourself as a number. Do not be so worried about the test that that's going to deem whether you can become pregnant or not. It is just a number. It is just a tool to help us figure out what you need to get pregnant. Now, the next test is looking at the fallopian tubes. And this is a pretty easy test. This is probably the test that most people get worried about. And the reason most people get worried about it is because when you read things online, it's always bad. Matter of fact, the reason why people get worried about it is because there's nothing ever good about it. But when you think about it, it kind of makes sense. Why would anyone ever say anything good about it? When's the last time you saw a woman get a pap smear right? Most amazing pap smear I've ever had coming back to this doctor every week. Not going to happen. Why? Because it's a pap smear. We call this a bias of reporting. No one is ever going to report that the HSG is fun. No one's ever high-fived me. Technically, I did have someone do it, but that was more for fun. But the point is, no one's going to high-five a doctor after a HSG because nothing comes from it. It's never a fun test. It's either okay or bad. And so everything you read about it is always going to be bad because no one says, you know what? That didn't hurt me at all. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go write about this in my blog. I want to tell everyone how this was just okay. Whereas with food, such as a taco, it could either be great, it could be good, it could be okay, it could be bad, it could be horrible. Well, maybe not for tacos, but some foods could be horrible. But an HSC can't be. There is no good. Matter of fact, you're kind of weird if you think it's good. So the point is, do not be afraid of this test. Yes, do people have discomfort? Absolutely. But most people do just fine. You just happen to keep seeing the things from the people who have the discomfort who are going to be the loudest and speak the most about it. I usually find that if you have severe pain with your periods, there's a good chance you're going to have more pain with HSG. And that is because the goal of the HSG is to cause pressure to build up in the uterus to push dye through the fallopian tubes to see if they're open. So if you already are accustomed to having painful periods, this is similar to a period. So that's a general rule I would tell you. Now, are there things you can do about it? Absolutely. You can take ibuprofen about an hour before the procedure, and that will help with some just like it would with a period. Now, the thing about an HSG is it's very important who does it. I know that sometimes it's easier to get them done from a radiologist, but really having a fertility doctor do the HSG is very important. And the reason why is because we look at these things all the time. And when we look at an HSG, we don't just look to see if it's open or closed. That's easy. Anyone can tell if it's open or closed. I can teach you to read all these all day long. It wouldn't be hard. But what you're really looking at is, how did the dye come out? Did the dye just spill out of the tubes? Did the dye collect in a kind of a pattern where maybe there was a 
scar or something around the fallopian tube? Did the dye fall right behind the uterus? Did the dye go into an area where it looks like there could be some issues? The way the dye comes out of the tubes says a lot. The second thing that we look at when we do an HSG is we look at the inside of the uterus. In the first second or two, when you start putting the dye in the uterus, you can actually see a silhouette of the uterus and can see any what we call intrauterine defects inside there, such as polyps. Now, if there's anything I can tell you about an HSG is, yes, it's gonna be a little bit uncomfortable, but most important, it's not the most perfect test. Yes, it's gonna tell us if your tubes are open or closed, but what it doesn't tell us is, do your tubes work? Are they functional? Do the little fallopian tube fingers pull the eggs towards it? The answer is no one can tell you. There is no way to know that. So just because your tubes are open doesn't mean there's a problem. And we will get back to this at the end when we're talking about what your doctor's gonna talk to you about treatments. The next test after that, which is the last test for most females, is going to be a sonohistogram. A sonohistogram, also called a uh, saline um, sonogram, is where we take fluid and put it into uterus. Now, the reason we have to do a sonohistogram to look inside the uterus is because the tissues of the cavity are very similar to the tissue of a polyp. And ultrasounds don't see images. When you look at an ultrasound and you say, well, I see a bunch of gray, guess what? We see the same gray you're seeing. We don't have any magical powers to see polyps. I think all we know is we know how to look at that gray and know what it means. But when we're dealing with densities that are the same, we can't see things in it as well. So the water allows us to separate the cavity and then we can see the polyp in it. I tell people reading ultrasounds in radiology is kind of like looking at satellite images. When I look at a satellite image, I see little boxes, rectangles, and circles. When a specialist looks at from the government, they're like, that's a bomb. I'm like, that looks like a square. And they're like, nope, that's a bomb. The same thing when you look at ultrasound, you see gray. I look at ultrasound, I see the same gray, but I know what I'm looking for. Now, these three tests all on the female side represent 40% of the fertility testing. The other 40% of the causes of infertility are going to be from the male factor. Now, his tests are clearly, without question, some of the toughest tests he has to do. He has to give a semen analysis, the dreaded semen analysis. Now, in all fairness, I know not many guys are listening to this, but I can tell women it's not as simple as it sounds because you're given this cup and you're told to give a sample. And it's a little intimidating because it's a pretty big cup. And you have to understand most guys have never compared how much ejaculate they've ever made. And so many guys get worried about this. Even a good friend of mine called me up one day after giving the sample saying, it's definitely him. He said, I can barely feel the cup. And they're not supposed to fill a cup. So just so you know, it is pretty intimidating for most men. But let's talk about that semen analysis and what we're looking for. So there are several factors in the semen analysis. Most people worry about count. Count, although important, is actually not as important as some of the other features. Clearly, if your count is low, you're going to have problems. If there's no count, you're going to have bigger problems. But count alone 
is only part of the problem. There are other factors we look at, such as the concentration, which is how much sperm there is in each milliliter of volume. The modal count, how many sperm are actually moving? There's even things called progressive motility, which is how does a sperm move? So I want to go over each of these so you understand what the semen analysis means. So let's start first with the overall appearance of the sperm. We look at things like the volume, the viscosity, and the pH. Now, the reason volume matters is that there are some men who have very little volume. And when there's very little volume and everything else is still normal, the concern is, is that the volume may be too little to build up enough in the vagina to cover the cervix. And we see this. Men who have perfect sperm, but just very little volume, have a hard time getting pregnant. And we do intrauterine inseminations and they get pregnant right away. Now, if there's low volume and there's no sperm there, that's a whole different workup. That could be due to these things called retrograde ejaculation. It could be due to actually having no sperm and having a thing called CBAVD. The point is, low volume does play a part. Now, viscosity has to do with the thickness. Now, I know when we think of sperm, at least most of us, we think of it being thick. Now, that is true. When sperm is first ejaculated, it is thick. But after sperm sits for about 10 to 15 minutes, it actually liquefies and becomes like water. And that's important because it's needed to do that to be able to get pregnant. Sometimes some men, it's a little thicker. And in that situation, it can cause fertility problems. Now, the pH is different. The pH has to do with issues going on with the seminal vesicle fluid and the prostatic fluid. Prostatic fluid is acidic. Seminal vesicle fluid is basic. So if someone's pH is off, it may represent a blockage somewhere and we might be able to tell where that blockage is based off of that pH. The next part I wanna talk about is the count. Now when we talk about the count, there are multiple different ways to talk about the count. There's the total count, which is just how much sperm you have. It's not a very useful number because it includes both the dead and the live sperm. So a lot of times people talk about what's called the total modal count. That's the absolute amount of sperm you have that's actually moving. And the moving sperm is the only sperm that's ever gonna get you pregnant. Now, concentration represents how much sperm there is per milliliter of volume. And that's a very critical number because when we talk about fertility, we want the sperm count the total modal count, to be at least 20 million. As long as the 20 million or above, most people can get pregnant naturally as long as there's not other factors going on. But if the concentration is low, then it doesn't matter what the count is. It doesn't matter what the total modal count is. You're going to have a hard time getting pregnant. Now, why? Think of the concentration as the front door. The total modal count is going to be everything behind it. But in reality, most sperm doesn't go into the uterus. Matter of fact, very little does. Most is going to come back out. But the sperm seeing at the cervix, that will get in. And so of the millions and millions of sperm that are ejaculated, only 100,000 sperm get in. And of those, maybe 50 sperm get to the egg. So if your concentration is low, there are very few sperm that are going to get in because that's the front door. Now, when you hear the word motility, that's an interesting one. Because when you think of motility and someone says, 
hey, I got 30% motility. You're thinking, yeah, they're moving at 30% the speed. But that's not what it means. Motility means how many are dead and how many are alive. If you have 30% motility of sperm, that means 30% are alive and 70% are dead. And imagine how that can affect fertility. Can you imagine if you were in a, a room with 100 people and the room was on fire and there's one door you can get through and 70% of the people won't move and you have to get out of that room? It's going to be pretty hard to get out that door because 70% of the people aren't moving and they're going to block your way. So the same thing when you have ejaculate that has a lot of dead sperm, it's going to make it hard to get pregnant. Now, these things are perfect for intrauterine insemination, which is called an IUI, because we can take the live sperm injected in. But naturally, you will have issues. Now, it doesn't just stop there. There is a thing called progressive motility. Progressive motility is saying, how well does the sperm actually move? So now you got your 30% moving, but how do they move? Are they moving like, you know, Michael Phelps? Or are they moving like Dr. Amos, which I can't swim that well. Um, I won't drown, but I'm not an Olympic swimmer. This is usually rated between like one and four, four and three are about where you want to be. But if it's one or two, even with a good total modal count, even with a good motility, you're going to have a hard time getting pregnant. Now, why? Because again, even though you have millions ejaculated, millions, I mean, it's insane there's so much sperm. Very few actually get in the uterus. And the more factors that affect that sperm, even fewer will get in. So that 50 that get there naturally in a good situation, now fewer get in. I always make the point, us men, we get so excited when we have high sperm counts. We flex our muscles and we're, oh, we're, we're strong. But the funny thing is, we don't make a lot of sperm because we're so awesome. We make a lot of sperm because we're so bad at making it. We have to make that much to just try to get a few to the egg. It's kind of funny when you think about it, when maybe God was making us kind of said with women, you know, here's, we'll make one really good egg. They'll be perfect. And with the guys, he just said, eh, we'll just make them make a whole bunch. Eventually when we get there, it's pretty inefficient, but it does work. Now, the last two things I'm going to talk about are inflammatory cells, such as round cells and morphology. Now, round cells, this is a little tricky because depending on how much testing the place does, you'll know what the round cells are. Round cells are exactly what it sounds like, these little cells that we see in the sperm that may represent sperms that are missing tails, very, very immature sperms, or may represent white blood cells. Most of the time, it's representing white blood cells, which means an infection. Matter of fact, when we see these and someone has a low sperm count, a lot of times we'll give them antibiotics to help treat this problem. If we're doing something like IVF and we see this, we'll actually recommend doing ICSI at that point. And the reason why is because if there's an infection, the last thing we want to do is put the sperm with an infection with the eggs. So by removing the sperm individually and getting them out of that medium, we can reduce the risk of passing along infection towards the eggs. And just in case you're not familiar with ICSI, ICSI stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which means injecting the sperm into each egg. Now, some places may actually go further and stain those cells and can determine what those cells are. 
Some places will just put the round cell number and you have to make a clinical judgment. Now, when it comes to morphology, morphology represents the shape of the sperm. If there is any test I think is most misunderstood, it is morphology because it is used sometimes, I think, inappropriately to push people to IVF. I think it is looked at sometimes as a major cause of infertility. And I don't think we know enough about morphology to really know this. So morphology represents the shape of the sperm. Now, it's not representing whether your shape looks good or bad. It's saying the ratio of sperm you have that is perfectly normal shaped. And there are different types of morphology. There's what's called the WHO morphology, which is the World Health Organization. And there's what's called the Kruger morphology, which is what most fertility clinics use. It's a little more stringent. And we expect about 5% of all sperm to be normal shaped. Now, what's the problem if it's not normal shaped? Does it mean you can't get pregnant? No. Matter of fact, if you only have 1% normal morphology, you can get pregnant. Now, why is that? When we go back to that beginning, we talked about those tough men making all that sperm. Very few of them ever make it into the uterus. Very few of those make it to the egg. So basically, the woman's reproductive tract is like the American Ninja Warrior course for sperm. Only the best of the best sperm are going to make it through there. And so in the end, all those normal shaped sperm are the ones that are going to make it there. Now, if the morphology was zero, I think you can make a fair argument that there could be a major issue. But any number really is not going to affect your fertility if you are still using the reproductive tract. So if we're talking about ovulation induction with timed intercourse, which means taking like Clomid and just having your course at home, that should still work. If you're doing intrauterine inseminations where you're injecting the sperm, I mean, I'm sorry, injecting the sperm into the uterus, that would still work. But when you do IVF, there's a problem. We don't get to use your American Ninja Warrior course for sperm and filter the sperm. So in IVF, we have to inject the sperm into the egg. And if someone told me they had to inject my sperm into my wife's eggs, I'm thinking, well, there's no way we're getting pregnant naturally because that's pretty invasive. But in reality, we're not injecting the sperm in because the sperm is bad. We're injecting the sperm in because we don't have that filtering ability like the woman's reproductive tract. And so we are injecting in to reduce the risk of no fertilization. So overall, don't look at morphology as this very worrisome feature. Think of it again as another tool that we use to maximize your fertilization with IVF. So in summary, starting back from the beginning, if you have been trying for three to six months and haven't got pregnant, it's probably time to see a fertility doctor. If you have any issues affecting the periods, surgery, sexually transmitted diseases, tubal diseases, male factor problems, absolutely by six months, you should be seeing a fertility doctor. When it comes to the testing, there are multiple tests. Tests that look at the ovarian reserve, the tubes, and the uterus. The last test we usually look at is the sperm and prenatal testing, which is looking at things to make sure you have a healthy pregnancy.
Now, in the end, more important than all of these is your story. None of these tests by themselves are going to define you. Each test in each story has to be dealt with differently. So a young couple with mild sperm problems may see a urologist first before trying fertility treatment. A woman in her late 40s, I'm going to recommend IVF sooner because she doesn't have as much time. So it's really important to take these tests and understand none of them are going to tell you you can or can't get pregnant. Rarely does that happen. The only time you're told that you can't get pregnant is if you don't have eggs anymore, such as in menopause, or if you don't have sperm. And even in those situations, there are fertility treatments that you can do and still get a family. But the point is, when you go to see the fertility doctor, you don't need to do anything to prepare. You don't have to know anything before you come there. You just need to tell your story. They will make a plan. They will have these tests done. And then you will follow up and they'll talk about you, your situation. And then they will make a plan based off of that. So when I see people comparing themselves and saying, well, my doctor did this or my doctor did this test and they did this. Why didn't they do that for you? That's because you're not all the same. If we did that, we wouldn't be good at our jobs. Now, are there places that do the same thing for everyone? Yeah, there are. But the point is, when you compare yourself, you have to remember you're not the same thing. And that's a good thing if your doctor's not doing the same thing, because that means they're doing something about you. This brings me to an interesting point. One of the things I find unique about our clinic is every single person has a different plan. It is very difficult at my clinic because since everyone has a different plan, I have to individually put through plans for each person. And literally not a single one is exactly the same. And that makes it very difficult to run a clinic. Now, what's interesting is I would consider this individualized treatment. But I hear from people sometimes and they'll say things like, I feel like a number. And I find that really interesting because the reason they say they feel like a number is because they're not seeing, let's say, me every time or, you know, they just feel like they're getting a different response from someone. But it shocked me because in my mind, I'm thinking, but your plan is completely individualized. That's nothing like a number. And a matter of fact, there are other clinics who literally give everyone the exact same treatment. Nothing's different between anyone. Everyone gets Clomid. Everyone gets their ultrasound cycle day 12. Nothing changes. Treatments for IVF, everyone gets it. All the testing's the same. And yet, people don't feel like a number there. And that blew me away because I realized even though they're being treated like a number, because they don't feel like a number, they feel like they're getting individualized care, even though they're not. And I think the important part behind this is I want to remind people 
getting individualized care is important. Because if everyone's just getting the same treatment, then you may not be getting the right treatment for you. Now, obviously making people feel like they're getting individualized care is also important. And obviously that's a place for me to get better at and something our clinic is striving for. But I do think when it comes to treatment and when you're looking for a doctor and when you're doing all these tests, like I said, when you're comparing yourself, you want things to be different. You do not want the same treatment as everyone because if that's happening, then you're not getting individualized treatment and your chances of success may go down because that may not be the right treatment for you. I got a couple of questions this week that I'm going to answer. I'm going to do a little fast to keep this episode not so long. So the first question came up is, why do we not do day three checks on our embryos? So in the past, we used to check our embryos that were in IVF on the third day and on the fifth day. Now, there's always what's called the FERT check, which is the day after retrieval. And the thing is that the third day doesn't really represent anything about the embryos. Very few embryos that look bad on day three, do you know for sure won't make it to day five. And one of the things that used to create was a lot of stress in patients. We would tell patients, oh, they're not looking good. And then everything would go fine. And they would even tell us, God, I wish you never told me about the day three. I was in so much stress for those two days. And one of the things we realized was opening the incubator to test the day three embryos, to look at them and to grade them, kept the embryos out. And it really didn't benefit anyone. So at that point, we decided there's no reason to take them out if we don't have to. So we finally made the decision to no longer give day three reports to reduce the stress for patients and to limit the exposure of the embryos to the oxygen in the room. The other question that came up is why do we use Menopure? Some people have noticed that some clinics do not use Menopure. And that can sometimes save the money. The thing about Menopure was there was a time when we didn't use Menopure. Years and years ago, when purified FSH came out, such as Gonalef and Folistim, everyone went to using just those meds. The problem was, is there was a gentleman, Richard Scott, who realized that when you added Menopure, it improved the embryo quality. Now, the thing about this is we don't know who exactly needs the Menopure. And so most clinics will use Menopure on everyone in addition to Golnalef and Falstim because no one wants to not use it and then find out you should have used it. The purpose of Menopure is Menopure adds the precursor hormone needed for the FSH to work better. And Multiple studies have shown using Menopure helps embryo quality. Now, can you save money without using Menopure? Yes. But in the end, the goal is to become pregnant, not to save an extra dollar, but to become pregnant. So we at our clinic use Menopure on anyone who has infertility. Now, if you don't have infertility, 
and you're only doing egg freezing, we may not use Menopure because you're not an infertile couple. But for most of our patients, we do use Menopure and most clinics use Menopure as well as purified gonadotropins. As always, I appreciate listening to our show. If you enjoy it, please review us at iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. Until next time, have a great week and I'll see you next week for Taco Bell Fertility Tuesdays.